Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, the podcast where we debate what the tomato meter is and maybe should be for films. Thank you for joining us once again. My name is just Mark Ellis. I'm not important. What is is the following information. My beloved co-host, Jacqueline Coley, is on a much-deserved respite. She's on hiatus. She has not told me her current location, which is probably good news because after all of her award show coverage, gearing up for the uh, film festival season, she's earned a little bit of break even from my voice and so in her stead is one of my dear friends an entertainment reporter for Rotten Tomatoes along with a lot of other stuff you can basically catch her covering everything from the Oscars to baseball she is the person who brings information about everything from films to Dodger Stadium Naz Perez is here Naz it is such a joy to work with you fresh off the wolf preserve you just visited Yes, I love wolves. Um, there's a conservation outside of L.A. called Wolf Connection you can go to. But you you didn't get my intro right, Mark. There was something else you had to say. Oh, right. OK, well, two things, actually. One is that Naz is my go to burger recommender. So <laughs> if you need a good burger, hit Naz Perez up. But she also happens to be a huge fan a lover, if you will, of rotten films. And so Thank this you. is a great episode for her because we're talking about the freshly released Morbius, which is currently clocking in at 16% on the tomato meter. So Naz, would this be one of those rotten films you love? I mean, in the words of Olivia Rodrigo, God, it's brutal out here. Like, yes, 100%. And I needed Mark to say that to set the tone because I, one of my, my favorite films of all time are rotten. Nancy Myers, The Holiday, Space Jam. I am a massive fan of rotten films. And I actually don't think Morbius should be rotten, um, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But I'm so excited to be here. I have been just like dying to hang out with you and our guest host, who I won't give away because that's your job. Well, yeah, and, and I guess I should continue my job right now is that I think that this person's going to side with you with the audience score because the audience score for Morbius is still 70%. And before we introduce him, because he's just a, a bubbly fountain of positive energy and comic book know-how, uh, there is going to be Morbius spoilers in this episode. So if you've not yet seen Morbius and you're dying to check it out, you probably want to hit pause on this, go to your local theater, and then come on back and listen to this entertaining chat about Morbius. Why is it entertaining? Well, Naz is here. It has nothing to do with me, <laughs> but it might have a little bit to do with our host, 
uh, today, who is he's our he's our guest. I'm the host. I should be hosting this and introducing Koi Jandra from Comic Woo! Book Shopping. Uh, the, he does the the Koi Cast podcast. Uh, he's a, he's a panelist at just about every con from coast to coast and in different parts around the world. And he is on his third Dunkachino this morning. Koi, welcome. You know, it's funny. I put down my Dunkachino to grab the mic. And if that isn't a metaphor for today, I don't know what is. I uh, I also have to be full disclosure. I did present this film for Sony and I want people to know I saw this movie before I presented it for Sony. So all these opinions are mine because I genuinely had a great time in this movie. But I'm ready for those comments. I'm ready for you to be like, oh, Sony shill presented. The no, no. I had a great time separate and then happened to yell it loudly enough. Sony heard. Oh my God, somebody ordered me a Dunkachino. This is going to be the best conversation ever. <laughs> I literally left a comment on Rotten Tomatoes' post about this. And I was like, don't, because a lot of people were going off in the comments, which we'll talk about. But I was like, don't worry, guys. This will be, I was like, you know, being a champion. And I was like, this will be discussed on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Like, Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Be look out for that. And then I got all these people and I deleted it. I was like, I don't have time for this today. I'm going to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but I will discuss it. And also, I'm just so happy because, Koi, I have seen you at junkets, at premieres. And like Mark was saying, you are you are so luminous. You're such a light. Your enthusiasm just radiates. And I know we're talking about Morbius, the living vampire, but you are a living comic book. And so I can't wait to just like <laughs> not only discuss this movie with you, but also like learn a couple of things from you, because I feel like you always are just like dropping facts. This is the worst time you, you and I have actually gotten to like work together because I we know. always see each other at these very things, but I've never gotten to team up. And I love that like you care about the source material enough to reach out. You're one of the people where I'm like, let me bestow all of this insane yeah. content. And and you actually do the reading because I, I got hella respect for your work. So I'm really excited about this. Yeah, because be I feel like Koi. episode for me. Like all Mark, I have to do is I know, just, Mark's just like sitting back. Mark, I feel ship. like Koi is like a disciple of the comics. Like, like if, you know what I mean? Like if Jesus was walking around, he'd be like walking around just bestowing like the lecture in the word. And I'm always interested because the comic book fans are really like the end all be all for me. You know, it's like, is this something that did them justice that they grew up reading is, you know, does it honor the legacy of the incredible artists that like drew and like we all grew up on comics, you know, even if you weren't a comic book lover, it, like reading the newspaper, people read comics. So I just. I just love Koi's love of it so much. I was a big, um, I was a big Hagar the Horrible and a big Far Side guy. But as far as Morbius goes, I, I think when you're talking about making a movie for fans and for mass audiences, it's the same problem with video game movies: is you want to please the hardcore fans, but you right. also want to introduce a new populace to what this material is and possibly build a franchise. And so, Koi, you heard the tomato meter score, sixteen percent. I have a feeling I know which way you're going, but just quickly, is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about? about Morbius. Rotten Tomatoes is very wrong about Morbius. I would put this film in the pre-post-credit scene, mid-70s, post-post-credit scene, high-60s. I'm going to separate the two because they're two very different experiences, but I do feel like it's a full letter grade drop after a couple scenes, but I, I would put this as this is just, just a, a below a B movie. It's a C movie for me. It's certainly passed. I want to see more of it. I think that if people went in wanting Lost Boys meets Venom, they would have had a way better time than, hey, why is that guy in this trailer that's second build on IMDb? What's going on here? And that's why that full letter grade dropped because that was some shenanigans. It's a isolated movie. It's supposed to be like the Universal Monster movies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 
but for the Sony Universal Marvel characters, which are all a spookier, more science-based take on these Spider-Man villains. That's the movie they accomplished. Then you could tell they pulled a lot out of it, put a lot into it. The movie that was once out there, I feel like we've got another Snyder Cut situation, and I'm not going to get into that. But Ooh. I definitely think there's a really beautiful BB plus out there in the world somewhere that was made, and then it settled on a C because it got some hijinks over, what, two years of meddling? But at the end of the day, what they made was a Morbius the Living Vampire movie, a character that I never thought would see the screen, a character that made his heyday in a cartoon where they couldn't punch people so he had suckers on his hands, a character that was originally supposed to be at the end of Blade 1. There's a cut scene when they're on the roof of Blade where they look up and Morbius is in the background. This character- No way! I didn't know that! That's, see? I, see? We're learning so much already. This is why you have Koi on the show. I mean, I, I do want to ask you about, about how Blade might factor into this franchise if we get get a franchise um but but before any of that i also have a theory on the post credit scene we'll get to Naz, let's quickly get your take is rotten tomatoes right or wrong are you siding with your new best friend koi jandra yeah i mean rotten tomatoes is absolutely wrong i thought this was a perfectly fine film i didn't think it was like as memorable as people maybe want it to be but it's definitely not i need my money back walk out of the theater rotten it reminded me of like a 2000 sort of superhero movie um i'm with the audience on this one 70 percent I love Jared Leto as a vampire. I think, I mean, the man's 50 years old. He's aging like a fine wine. He's like the most actual vampire we have walking on this rock in space. Um, I love him in transformations. Um, I think it's always just so enticing for me to, you know, see him lose weight, gain weight, the contortionist walking, the horror element. He actually stayed um, in a wheelchair while he was going to the bathroom to stay in character. Like, I love that about Jared Leto. I also love how it was a little bit campy. Like Matt Smith was giving me like a Munsters vibe. Um, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I love fashion, which is another reason I'm a huge fan of of Jared, um, because he's a huge face for Gucci. And like, I don't know, it just it was a little campy, which I thought was actually quite fitting for who he is as a person. I love that it was dark and the visuals. I just love vampires. So hot vampire romance is just always entertaining for me. Um, and the closest resemblance this has for me, Mark, is the most the most film that I am up in arms about is Night at the Roxbury, which has a 9% rating on the tomato meter and the audience score was 69%. And so when this came out, uh, Rotten, Tom Rotten Tomatoes, tomato meter score, Morbius, 16%, audience, 70%. I was like, wow, this is very similar to how I felt about Night at the Roxbury. Like this was, it could have used some levity and humor. I think it all really came down to a lot of the writing, but... Anyways, that's a really long story long of me just saying that I think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong about Morbius. I did not think we were going to have a Night at the Roxbury reference in there, but I, I will give it, I always call it the Man on Fire because Man on Fire is a beloved movie that is actually rotten. It's pretty rotten, but the audience score is like way super high. So I think that this could be a Man on Fire situation for a lot of folks, certainly for Naz and for Koi. For me, um, shout out to Toby Jones, by the way, who's a fan who really wanted us to talk about Morbius amongst the throngs of fans who just want our take on this sort of stuff. So so I saw the movie. I think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong with 16%. I ain't getting it to fresh. I cannot get it to fresh. I'm going to give a shout out because I had some fun on Twitter last night to Tim Smith and Damron. I said, if y'all can guess my exact tomato meter score, what I think this movie is, then I will give you a shout out on the podcast. So Tim Smith and Damron nailed it. They both said 52%. Peggy Gubbins, oh so close, saying 50.51%, which is 51.51%. Uh, <laughs> 50. So... 
Um, but I mean, here's the thing is that we're going to get into all this stuff about Morbius is why a lot of people maybe felt it was that rotten, but also our take on Morbius. That's what you're here for is for why we think Morbius is being disserved possibly by the tomato meter. So we're going to get into that with movie talk. But first up, it's two minutes with Tim, our expert review curation manager. He's going to tell us what the critics were saying at the time of this film's release, which was um, just yonder. So Tim, take it away. Two minutes with Tim. Every once in a while, I feel like it's a good idea to give a quick overview of the tomato meter and how it works. The tomato meter is a percentage of professional critics that gave a film or TV show a positive review. It isn't a grade on a scale of 0 to 100. I bring this up because when I meet new people and I tell them I work at Rotten Tomatoes, they'll often say, oh, so you watch all the movies and then give them a score. And then I'll have to tell them that we aggregate reviews from hundreds of critics and publications from around the world, all of whom are independent entities and none of whom are under our employ. We also call from the same pool of professional critics every week, so we don't pick and choose which reviews to add for specific movies. Let me demonstrate how this works. At the time of this recording, Morbius is rotten at 16% on the tomato meter with 194 reviews. That means out of those 194 reviews by professional critics, 32 are positive, which results in a score of 16%. It does not mean that we at Rotten Tomatoes gave it a grade of 16 on a scale of 0 to 100. Morbius also has an audience score of 70%. And here I would like to make the caveat that Morbius has only been out for a couple days, so as more critics and audience members see it, the respective tomato meter and audience scores are likely to shift over the course of weeks and sometimes even years. So back to Morbius. What did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, George M. Thomas of the Akron Beacon Journal wrote, Morbius, despite the best efforts of its cast, suffers from a number of problems. It's not a Marvel film showing its A-game. At its absolute best, it's pedestrian and lacks scope. At its worst, it is unintentionally silly. However, in a fresh review, Manola Dargis of the New York Times wrote, while most of it is as predictably familiar as expected, it does something unusual for a movie like this. It entertains you rather than bludgeons you into submission. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus reads, cursed with uninspired effects, wrote performances in a borderline nonsensical story, this dreary mess is a vain attempt to make Morbius happen. So that's Morbius and a long-winded refresher on the tomato meter. Mark? Naz? Normally, I would make some kind of wacky vampire pun, but I think I used them all up when we covered Blade a while back. So I'm just going to say, I hope you're well, and I haven't seen you folks in a while, and I miss you, and I can't wait to hear you sink your teeth into it. Oh, man, I just did it. I'm so sorry. Back to you folks. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for reminding us that, that again, 16% isn't necessarily every critic walking out of that movie saying this movie is 16 out of 100. It's just that if it doesn't get to that 60% threshold for a particular critic, if they don't give the movie three out of five, they could give it 2.9 out of five and it still counts towards rotten. And so it's an aggregate. That is where you get that 16% from. And with that, we're going to get right into movie talk. So Brian, hit the music. All right, so <laughs> I want to get into y'all's favorite scenes. I just have to start with this question, though. First, you, Coy, you're our special guest. You, you know people who love this movie, but you also see the tomato meter score. What is the one reason that you can lock down that is th the most glaring example of why critics are panning this movie? Because we live in an age of very, very similar movies being successful, and this is not amongst those movies. I have been on this show a number of times to talk about Marvel films. I'm known as a comic book expert, but since Marvel has more movies than other studios, people see me as the Marvel guy. I tend to like Marvel, but I also like DC. I like Image. I like other things. 
But what's happened with Marvel is the movies that are owned by Marvel are part of one giant serialized, more akin to a TV show than movie series at this point. The sheer volume of hours, the stylized way they come out every three months, that's more akin to what we'd consider traditionally television. So in that universe, you have to have a lot of similarities. That's its strength. And that is the beautiful thing about the MCU is that even things like Eternals, which is couldn't be more different than, say, Shang-Chi or Black Widow that came out right before it, you can still watch all of these movies and go, oh, this is all a shared thing, even though sometimes I want a baked potato, sometimes I want french fries, they're still potatoes. The MCU has made this incredible potato medley that you can have the versatility of potatoes represented on the screen with your characters. What Sony's doing is they're making something more akin to a hash brown or a tater tot. It's a little greasier. It's a little more rough around the edges. It's more of a party, but it's it's still a potato. And I think people are expecting French fries and baked potatoes. And when you hand them hash browns, they get upset. It is still a comic book movie. It is still dealing with these characters, but it's going in a very more seasoned direction. It's got a lot of different styles. It's got a lot of different seasonings. And I think that's its strength that I enjoy that critics are panning. If this felt like an MCU film, we wouldn't have the ability to let Jared go this hard. We wouldn't have the ability to go as campy as Matt Smith did. We wouldn't have the ability to let this play in this almost maniacal mustache twirling world that I enjoy occasionally from the early 2000s. I miss going to Blockbuster Hollywood Video, pulling out a silly movie, watching it on a Friday night with my friends and not feeling like there's homework involved. I'm the guy that does the homework. I literally do it professionally, but it's also nice to just have a hash brown and not worry about the calories. I think Koi is my soulmate. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're my soulmate. As a high profile, like fa- uh, as a high profile fast food connoisseur, like the fact that you just threw in those like potato metaphors, like <laughs> I'm I'm in a hundred percent. Right. It, it, it kind of establishes their complaints. They're complaining about hash browns because they wanted baked potatoes. They advertised hash browns. Enjoy your hash browns. And what I think, too, I, and Mark, not to like just jump in here. I just think like and I wanted to ask both of you this. It's like, have we have. Of course, Marvel has set the standard, right? Uh, Because everything is just so funny and so good. And after Spider-Man No Way Home, I mean, it's almost like I feel bad for any movie that would even come out like a month or two months after it, right? But it's almost like, have we just... It's like, is that what we expect from every single superhero movie now, like forever and always? And I agree. It's like, I want variety. I want different things. I think the critics were panning it, Mark, because I actually pulled some things that some critics said. Kevin A. Ranson from MovieCrypt.com said, we know where it's been. We know where it's going. There's zero emotional impact when we get there without a hint of denouement. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you guys about emotional impact. Maybe that's why I think critics felt like it was just very predictable. Um, and then another one said... Um, Although Dracula has long represented the outsider, Morbius spends the whole film trying to be more normal, which I think opens up a broader conversation of Morbius isn't a, he isn't a superhero. He's not a villain. He's somewhere in the middle. And maybe people are just confused by that. Maybe we live in this black and white world where people just want to know what it is. And on top of that, it's an origin story too. Like I was, I was screenshotting some of the comments um, Rye, R-I-X-R-05 on Rotten Tomatoes left a comment and they on Instagram and said, I thought it was good. I assume people were expecting a lot, but then again, it's an origin story. 
And like you said, Coy, people don't know Morbius. This is a character that we didn't think was even, you didn't even think was going to hit screens. And I think it had a lot going against it when you think of something like Venom, which most people who didn't even grow up reading comics knew, like they've heard the name Venom before. I think there's more connective tissue with with Venom into Spider-Man. And so, especially it was like Spider-Man No Way Home. It it was, Naz makes a great point. It was such a huge grand slam out of the stadium that everybody seemed to celebrate. But I will say, I don't think Morbius is a better movie than No Way Home. In no way am I saying that. I think that The (laughs) Eternals is a better movie than Morbius. But I I do appreciate that there are comic book movies out there that we can just walk in not knowing anything, get a nice, clean origin story, and leave. If we're continuing the the potato comparison, I just feel like this was a hash brown that had a lot of seasoning on it. And sometimes you get those hash browns at the bottom that are just deep fry, and there's no real potato left in there, which, again, I'm still eating it. But I I, I agree with the criticism that there's just there wasn't a lot of of guessing it felt like a pretty predictable ride that we were on. There wasn't a, a whole lot of emotional impact. There's a little bit, but not a whole lot of emotional impact for me. And so I enjoyed the story surface level. I liked the Jekyll and Hyde nutty professor aspect of this. But I felt like as the movie went on, it started to leave me feeling like I was stuck in second gear. What's the scene for you, Coy? And then you, Naz, that you're like, this is why this is a better movie than people are giving it credit for. Is there one scene? that stands out in particular. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient comfortable ah carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is carmax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer so don't settle find love at first drive and start shopping now at carmax.com carmax the way car buying should be. I really love the cat and mouse scene with Adria and Matt. Um, Adria Arjona, uh, it incredibly bringing both like medical jargon, empathy, and a relationship, having a foundation for this film. Like I, I know her from Six Underground and, and you know, the, the six, what was it? Six Below, 13 Underground. She did two movies with numbers in them. And like, she's an incredible force in these ensembles. But this is the first time I feel like I got to connect with her with both Matt and Jared. Like she was the kind of crux of that weird bro, not even bromance. They kind of have like this brotherhood. And then her relationship with Jared, I bought to such a level that when Matt was toying, playing with his food, I loved that I was worried about her. I loved that Matt was enjoying the hell out of those shoulder pads. Like, I felt like it was very much that Michael from Lost Boys. And I also felt like Matt (laughs) knew what movie he was in because he was chanting Michael. He was playing with his food. He was being a vampire. And all of it felt like reading the 70s Supernatural Bronze Age comics this is inspired by. In Mm. the 60s, you have the Silver Age of comic books, which is a lot more science-based and golly gee whiz 
Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy going to college. Like it's a lot more like shucks, Mr. J that all plays. But then the seventies happen and the movies start to get darker. So the comics start to get more spooky and supernatural and they start to play with those elements. Those mm. scenes felt like comic books from the era where you have Marvel literally publishing Tomb of Dracula next to Morbius and Blade next to all of these midnight suns. And to me, having a character play with his food with a character we are invested in because Audrey had such a good job and Matt with that glee, all of that is what I want to see more of in a sequel. All of that is what I want to see more of from a world of living vampires. And I think it really played with the stylized action choices with that wispy, contorty colors. All of that worked for me in that sequence. I love Naz, that you said scene. that too. Yeah, because, yeah. well, I, I was going to say all the romance scenes and I love that you gave her her flowers because she did ground it she did ground this like supernatural spooky like weird it's like a vampire <laughs> you know what i mean meets like superhero flying through the air like it's all super it's weird and she totally grounded it and i bought their romance more than i bought some some of batman's romances on in live action films like i agree that was my favorite but if i obviously like you know when when he sucks the blood out of her and like the blood falls on her. I was like, oh my God, that's so hot. But also um, Matt Smith, like <laughs> staring at them was like so creepy and like funny to me. I'm like, this is so creepy, weird. I love this so much. But also and in very like basic B manner, I loved the subway scene when when Jared and Matt are sort of like going at it. And, and I think I just, as a human, I just love this underlying thing of how they both have this disease um, and, and just him wanting to find a cure, but it turning him into a monster him. You know what I mean? It's like two people that sort of have the same thing, but go in two totally different ways. Like what makes Matt's character a villain and Jared's not a villain. Like I, I love, I was like thinking about all those things. So I, I, I got deep there for a second and I just love the visuals too. I thought that it was like really pretty and fun to look at. Also him being a doctor, he, he signed a, he swore a, a Hippocratic oath. So he swore a Hippocratic oath to save, and then his thirst is making him want to kill. I love the Jekyll and Hyde being with a side of like him being a doctor ups the Jekyll and the Hyde to be like, I literally save people and I'm I'm drawn to kill. Matt did not swear that oath. And I li- I right. like that Ironmonger Iron Man thing you're talking about. There mm-hmm. were a few so there, there were a few transgressions against the Hippocratic oath committed <laughs> by Dr. Michael Morbius. But th- I think that that was the emotional crux of the film for me. I-, I thought Audrey was great, by the way. I don't think that she had enough to do as the film went on, which was which was a little disappointing. But the most I felt for any of the characters was ironically, because if you listen to the show for any period of time, you know, not the biggest fan of children, but when we meet Lucian and when we're new Milo, and then we meet Michael as an, as an older child and like mm-hmm. the bullies that are across the street picking on them. I, I can't, I, I want to beat the crap out of any bully I see in a movie. I just cannot yeah. stand it. So Same. that I really felt that. And I thought that did a great job of setting up the desperation that, Dr. Morbius is feeling about we're running. We're in a race against time because our bodies just aren't going to hold up. My mind is there. I know I'm brilliant. I know I can find a cure for this thing, but it I don't know that I can do it ethically in the time that I have left or that my friend has left. And so even though it's going to sound contradictory because I don't like homework, I did love the scientific aspect of this. I love that we're testing. And then you get to that, whether it's the Incredible Hulk, whether it's all these other superheroes who have some sort of genetic experiment, some sort of thing that goes wrong where they're altering DNA. It it ain't going to work for you in the way that you think. And so seeing Morbius kind of try to rectify himself and and to build himself back up after this transformation and saying, well, can I still do good like this? I really felt that. 
I, I mm-hmm. felt that that was the inner conflict. But from there, I think it was like the movie's like, all right, we're out on this limb pretty far. Let's just go back in and let's have a couple battles and then let's just resolve itself with some post credit scenes that can only be described as so clunky. I think that that and this is what I was referencing earlier. I think that those post credit scenes actually affected a lot of people's overall score of this movie because we're so toned by audiences now to be like, hey, we saw a good movie and then we just got our minds blown by some sort of post credit scene. This was head scratching. It was confusing. It felt rushed. It felt cheap. It felt everything that you get with me on a first date. So, Koi, <laughs> what exactly were those post credit scenes, if you can make any sense of it? Okay, so I I consider myself a comic book expert and I am so trying to rationalize the choice of having the movie. This was supposed to come out before No Way Home, to give it its credit. This was supposed to exist before it would have made more sense, kind of. But having him transfer into the universe that he's not in and have them be like, it's cool, bro, welcome, get out of prison. And then where did the suit come from? So theoretically, what those are supposed to represent is Adrian Toomes feeling a kinship with Morbius, maybe because they're both scientists, maybe because they're both underdogs, maybe they're because they're both, you know, have have a thing against the man. I can, I can stretch there. But the Sinister Six is a, a, a cabal of villains that form to fight Spider-Man. Morbius has not met Spider-Man to our knowledge, unless there's a time jump, which was implied that I missed. And as far as I know, Mm. Vulture has not met Michael Morbius. So I don't understand how Homeboys 1 and 2 go like, let's unite about this guy we've not really connected over yet. Theoretically, that represents the beginning of the Sinister Six. What I would do if I was running Sony is I would retroactively have flashback scenes in between that time jump and make it clear that he'd been in that universe a little longer. He felt that Spider-Man was the reason he was in that universe. I would then have Morbius discover that Peter Parker used science to make him Spider-Man and maybe feel betrayed because it made him strong and it made him thirsty for blood. Mm. I would retroactively in a Sinister Six movie do a timeline play and make those scenes make sense, which they totally could do. And I think the best way to make a Sinister Six movie is introduce all six of our villains as very, very sympathetic anti-heroes. And then I'd actually have Spider-Man as the villain of that film, Ocean's Eleven style. These are guys just trying to get by. Have a bunch of science freaks that couldn't escape the science. Judge Peter for being revealed as a science freak that got away with it. And then you've got a reason for their animosity. You feel for these guys. It can work, but I would let, let me take over, Sony. I got you. Wait, but Koi, you bring up such an such an excellent point. It's like if they would have just built up the emotional stakes of all these anti-science heroes, like you were saying, it's almost like the credit bed scene. Really, you're right, Mark. It's like it did ruin it because now it's like, oh, now they're just gonna get together and hate on some guy. Like we should be that we should be wanting to root for them. And I I think it just posed more confusion than it did excitement. It was 100% no Harry Styles at the end of a film. It was the complete opposite of that. And it felt like it, it de- you could feel that they weren't in the same room. You could feel it. Like even the eye level, you know what I'm saying? Like it just didn't even feel like it, it really didn't feel like it was together. It felt like two opposite puzzle pieces. And I think at, at that's... the risk of, yeah, sorry to cut you off, Naz, at the risk of upsetting everyone in the Snyderverse, it felt like that post credit scene that looked like it was well shot and pulled off in, uh, in Justice League, but I had no idea what connection it had to anything else. And so I, I kind of needed somebody to like 
playbook that for me. And this one, I felt the same way. I mean, it, when you look at the first post credit scene, which is Adrian Toomes appearing in this cell where he wasn't before, I could kind of see that as like a hint as to what we might get in No Way Home if this movie had come out first. But don't you have to cut your losses at some point and say, this is not when this movie's being released. So we just, we, we have to go in a different direction. My, my struggle with that is that if they hadn't advertised the film with him in it, then one, they I think the expectation would have been, hey, let's have a good vampire time. And two, it would have made it less like they were trying to turn their hash brown into a French fry. If you let the hash brown exist as a hash brown, you're not dealing with it being over seasoned because your expectations are there. So if you don't try to modify the hash brown in post, you enjoy it as a hash brown. It felt like I literally got something that was in an air fryer and then dipped in a fryer. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not twice bake spaghetti this hash brown. So it like, was I like wet, added- microwavable mashed potatoes. Yeah. Mm. And the post credit scenes were. And the movie was Exactly. Wasn't. The post credit scenes. Yeah. And that's not fair to the movie because as we talked about with Eternals, I loved Eternals and the post credit scene, but I can acknowledge that the post credit scene was what everyone talked about. This is kind of the inverse of that where I enjoyed the movie, but then the post credit scene made people like, because we we started the movie at one of the screenings where they'd already revealed the uh, Rotten Tomatoes score had already started to roll out. And I could tell <laughs> the audience pre-movie was a little tepid. By the end, people were clapping and cheering. And then by the post credit scenes, it was quiet again. And I was like, I just went on an emotional ride with these people that like could have been a different landing and sticking to landing is so important in a culture that people have no attention span. They're only going to remember the last five minutes of their life. Yeah, we oh, talked sure. about Adria Aryona Ar- Ar- and, and how great she was with what she had to do. But that the ending of that sort of storyline also left me cold and, and confused. And so I it, it was weird that she, we she appears to have died or is just laying there dead. She does get bitten, and I believe a lot of the blood sucked out of her body, and then the last thing we see is her eyes open back up, but that didn't do anything for me other than make me be like, wait, so is she like him now? Is that that all we get? And that's all we got. And so I was like, that's you're just going to tease me with that, and there's no payoff there. I felt like maybe you could have given us something in that vein in a post-credit scene, or God forbid, maybe even as the movie ends. That would have been a great post credit scene, but I mark it. That actually, that I actually got excited by that part when she opened her eyes. I was like, yes. No, yeah, I, but I thought there was going to be more. Like, right, that's all right. we got. Well, it's very, what they're doing to me, and again, this is a, a net positive for me, even though it's not tonally the times, is that feels very 2000s action movie, both Venom 2 and this, where they had like, we're setting up a monster. Will it come back? We don't know. And I, I do feel like if Sony grabs someone akin to a Foggy to oversee all this, they can put these threads into a quilt. Like there's a lot of threads for a quilt. So I'm not judging the quilt yet, but I'm definitely aware that if these threads don't come back together, I'm going to be upset later. So I, my concern is the Iron Man 2 problem where it's like we're rushing to a shared universe without actually enjoying the moment. So weirdly, as far as this movie being, people are saying forgettable. I don't think it's forget forgettable. My concern is that it opens up too many doors that I don't necessarily know if will be fulfilled, including my favorite two parts of the film, Matt Smith and Audria. I don't feel like I got a, enough of a bow to feel like I left resolved there. Mm, that's really interesting too. It almost feels like we are rushing towards something. Like it's more like let's give people what they want and the buildup of what Avengers did and like what MCU did to get to Endgame and Infinity. It does take time. You're right. And I think maybe that's why the the credit bed scene feels really off because it feels like we're jumping ahead when we shouldn't be seeing this yet. And Sinister Six should be a thing, but you shouldn't go like we have to get to it tomorrow because then you get certain cuts of other team movies that could have taken a little bit longer to get there. That will not and be named not out of fear the, of the comments. 
it's not just a pandemic that has sort of delayed the Sinister Six thing. I mean, they've had this on the table. They've wanted to do this since before we got Spider-Man back in the MCU. And I mean, now if we're sort of transitioning into like behind the scenes talk, why hasn't that happened yet? This is like Sony. Spider-Man is the biggest thing that Sony has ever. Had. They've had some big properties. None of them as big as Spider-Man. You know, I, I love Ghostbusters. None of them are as big as Spider-Man. Why haven't we gotten somebody to oversee all this and start putting that quilt together? Because I, I, it's almost like they saw the box office numbers with Venom, and which were great. And they said, oh, this is always going to work like this. And then if, if it ties into something else, great. It, it just I don't feel the care with the storytelling and the continuity with the storytelling. Because I guarantee you this, if this was a, an MCU proper film and this was made the way that the other films strictly in the MCU have been made, you never get post-credit scenes that are left head scratching. I think they're looking at the next two years, whereas Kevin Feige is looking at the next 10 years. And I think they're reacting to the most recent successes, which is historically accurate. Like, I think it's okay for film studios to go, this work, let's do another. That's how sequels exist. That's how we get the traditional film universe. But we're not living in a traditional film universe anymore in the comic book sense. You need to be able to look 10 years ahead. You need to be able to look at not your last movie, but your next 10 movies. And I think they need someone like we just talked about, like a Kevin Feige to oversee all this because they have the ingredients. But if you bake them wrong, the souffle deflates. And I really, really think that we I'm hungry. This is a lot of food. I'm force. starving. But I do think that like what they I'm need like to Morbius do, level about to eat the next human I see after doing chicken brains. <laughs> But like that being said, I do think that what they can do is bring back Garfield as the Venom and Morbius Spider-Man because it's much more science-based. The film grade Whoa. and tone looks much more like that world. You keep an older, more quippy Spider-Man that feels like you're not having a vampire punch a child. You let Tom rest a little bit. You let him, you know, him and Zendaya move into their house. You give it a gap. Then you have the college years MCU Spider-Man separate of the adult Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Introduce Miles to the Garfield Spider-Man. That way you've yes. got... That way you've got an actual mentor. Because right now, if you introduce him to the Tom Spider-Man, it's two kids. They're too close in age. You need the mentorship. And then maybe the Sinister Six kills Garfield after a movie of just Garfield, giving us Miles Morales in the Spider-Man universe, giving you the cash cow that Sony could use. Koi, how are you not like head of this? I'm so confused. <laughs> that was Sony? literally the like a better idea that I couldn't I couldn't even have dreamed of because Garfield just going through like such a redeeming renaissance right now was like probably the most charming, actually scene stealing in the Tom Holland Toby No Way Home. And I that just yes, I want to watch that right now. I'll tell you yes. exactly why Koi's in the head of the studios because for his first three mentions of Andrew Garfield, I thought he was talking about the cat. You have to be more <laughs> I clear. Thought, I thought so too only because lasagna and i'm starving because <laughs> i've been food based this whole like time food metaphors and it's like well andrew garfield looks like i mean the guy gets three squares a day but garfield is always chomping and so i went towards the orange cat which i would never complain about seeing in any shared universe the the one thing and i want to get y'all's take on this on what you you wanted to see in this morbius that you did not because even though we even myself we might be defending this movie i don't think it's fresh y'all think it's fresh I want to know what was the one thing that you maybe expected or maybe you just hoped you saw whether it was another scene with characters that we had. For me, I might be a dope here. I was expecting some sort of nod or reference or scene with Blade. And I was like, no, no Blade then yet. Okay, we're, we're going to get these two post-credit scenes. We're not going to get a hint of Blade. That one left me sort of scratching my head, Coy. 
I think there's a there's a certain legal issue with that because the Marvel shared Spider-Man universe is characters that are introduced and within the Spider-Man universe. Blade was introduced in an entirely different run of comics that had no connection directly to Spidey at first. Obviously, Blade and Spider-Man have interacted since, but I think legally, mm. since Blade wasn't born from a spectacular, sensational, amazing web of Ultimate Spider-Man comic, you cannot mm. legally have him in the Sony universe of Marvel characters without the original contract because you introduced Mahershala Ali's character post the Sony Spider-Man handshake deal. So that would be a separate legal contract unless they renegotiated it after No Way Home. Because when you introduced Mahershala, that was in phase four, that handshake deal happened in phase three. So I think legally, Wesley Snipes could appear, but not Mahershala. And I think uh, Marvel might be upset that if they introduced it play. I'll take it. I'll take I mean, it. Oh, it's the bean counters. Instead of coming to America, coming to Spider-Verse. <laughs> what I would do is the Illuminati in the upcoming Doctor Strange looks like we're getting the Illuminati. I would introduce Wesley Snipes' blade to give him his flowers and then have that blade be the one that deals with in the Morbius universe. Andrew Garfield, Wesley Snipes, keep that in this Morbius Venomverse mm -hmm. and then keep the MCU stuff separate, maybe even killing the Illuminati in the Doctor Strange movie so that way you feel these separate universes and get to play with them. Sorry to interrupt. You were just I'm dropping straight facts and you just just need to hire an animator to just make all these storylines happen, <laughs> put them on social media. And we all know how the world works, right? Like, look what happened with Sonic the Hedgehog. Everyone will be like, yes, make this one, make this one, this one, th this is what we want. And then they'll just make it, Koi. That's what we have to do. Sony got my knife. Doesn't matter if it's Sonic's teeth or if it's teeth that we want to see a little longer and more sharper <laughs> and fangier in movies that maybe they will listen. But if it if it's a legal issue, I guess I understand that as as we sort of wind down our chat about Morbius here and our feelings about it. Naz, was there something that you were walking out of the theater and you're like, I wish we got that. I wish this happened. Yeah, I just wanted a little more laughs. Like for me, it was really in the writing. Like when I look at the acting, I look at like someone like Jared Harris, who is like America's grandfather, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> why didn't he have like a lot like a fortune cookie line that stuck with me? You know, like the like the greater power, greater responsibility, like Jared Harris to be in a superhero movie. Like, come on, give him something that give me like my sort of I don't know, like a Mr. Miyagi moment that I sort of wanted from him that I feel like I didn't get um, Tyrese Gibson's character. He's somebody who we love, who we laugh at in Fast and the Furious films, who has been dying, dying in every interview he's done on a red carpet and junket saying, MCU, Sony, put me in a superhero movie. And then he was in one. So I was somebody who was like, oh my God, this guy's dream came true. I can't wait to see what happens. I did not laugh at like anything he said. And I don't think it's like to his detriment. I just don't think he was utilized um, as well as he could have been. I think he could have offered a lot of light and levity and a little more humor into like this spooky sort of supernatural horror -y, um, movie. And it would have lended itself to be a little more campy, which I think would have, I don't know, it just would have done that for me. And also, um, you know, aside from Emmy winning Jared Harris, you have Emmy nominated Matt Smith, who I absolutely loved as Prince Philip in The Crown. I actually think he should have took home an Emmy for playing um, that character over Tobias Menzies. Uh, and I felt like he also wasn't given sort of the, I, I think like, it's like I watched him do his all, but like, it's like when you see Mark to speaking your language, it's like when you see a great athlete on sort of like a B team where you're just like, oh, I know you could be doing so much more if you had like someone else on the bench to help you out with this. That <laughs> and sounds I felt like, like LeBron he, and the Lakers right now. Yeah, I felt like he wasn't, <laughs> I don't know. I felt like he could have had a little more for me. It was like the writing. I think I left sort of like thinking that it could, that could have been a little stronger for me. Yeah. Corey, I'll set you up to, to, to close this out here. But, but first I will say when Tyrese Gibson and, and my, my buddy from stand up out Madrigal from way back, he, he was the produce, one of the producers of 
my special dog stepfather. Love you, Al. And and Al did give me some some much needed levity and laughs in there. Is there just investigating this preposterous stuff and just watching Tyrese to try to be like, I okay, we got this. And Al being like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just I'm just here to to investigate and this is getting crazier and crazier and crazier watching that but that also felt like something that didn't really tie up as cleanly as i wanted it to uh coy you you have the floor morbius final thoughts overarching sentiments i think that sony is doing a lot right and not necessarily letting themselves lean all the way in i think i agree completely with naz with the comedy if they're making spooky campy supernatural these Universal monster movie tone films need the levity of knowing what they are. I think the greatest strength Marvel has is almost a meta-modernist quality of knowing exactly how to be both sincere and ironic at the same time, how to make a wink, a smile, and a laugh be one emotion. And I think that they need to realize that that's a different tone than they're capturing. So if you're going to have something that feels intentionally hokey, and if you want the meta-modernism of a Deadpool, which is the peak of meta-modernism, of something that knows exactly what it is to the point of telling you what it is, you need to lean a little bit more into your 70s comic book sensibilities let jared wear the bondage gear cape with the comics that that he wants to wear let this movie have matt smith go all the way in all the scenes let jared harris have some cheeky like you said like comedic lines but most of all let the movie live on its own without trying to tie into a universe that isn't akin to it you let this entire movie's runtime live in one universe and then by putting it as a toe in the door in another one you kind of undermine the thing you had just built this and venom can live simpatico beautifully this Venom and Andrew Garfield can live amazingly beautifully because we've had time to settle down from Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 and because of the science world you've built up. I would say the best thing Sony can do is look at the pieces they've already established, go back to the macro instead of the micro. They're looking at the micro. They need to look at the macro. Build your Sinister Six of super science-based villains that are sympathetic while also letting the tone rest in the world you've already built, trust in the tone you've already built, and then let us as an audience go, that's what I want more of. This is the Sinister Six I want. I care about these characters. I feel conflicted because Spider-Man's the antagonist. That's how the Sinister Six you've started can work. But if you rush to the finish line, you're only going to trip and fall. And I love what you've done. Don't trip and fall. Cord, do you do motivational speaking? I should. I, was, I, I, I mean, like, he is the Tony Robbins of comics. I'm telling you guys. And also, all I have to add to that is Sony just needs to hire Koi. Like, Koi, I really feel like you should be a consultant. And I'm not saying this is like a joke. I'm being serious. Yeah. Like, I think you know fan sentiment so well. I think you know all the canon so well. And I think you're right. And I, as someone also who really enjoyed Morbius, I don't want what my fear is as somebody who used to be a reality TV producer. And as Mark said, like, I've covered a lot of stuff in like the gamut of pop culture from like baseball and like movies and all this stuff. What my my fear is, is we know we are in an industry where when something doesn't perform well, a lot of decisions are made or it's all, everything is so easily given up on. Okay, this didn't work. Let's do something else to, to sort of, it's all about the bottom line is what I'm trying to say, you know? And, and I just hope like what you're saying is we all just, Take a deep breath. We all woo saw and we let Morbius be what it is. I mean, take out the credit scene right now. It's still in theaters. <laughs> like, just do it right now. We still have time to save this and maybe this podcast will make it happen. I don't know. I enjoyed watching it. I, I enjoyed watching the movie, even though I can't get it to fresh. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed shoving popcorn in my mouth and it, it left me with a lot of questions, scratched my head at some parts. But ultimately, I feel like Morbius has been underserved by the tomato meter score. And I know that Koi and Naz, who are making it fresh, feel the same way. So we're doing things a little different now because first, 
first, we are unfortunately going to say goodbye to Naz, who has a bunch of uh, meetings and, and Mark, on I can camera say, things. I can say five or 10 more minutes if you want me to. It's up to you. Naz can stay five or 10 more minutes as she Instacart's potatoes to, to cook immediately <laughs> after this. Then we are going to go right to mailbag. Hit the music. All right, so this is now mailbag, and then we'll uh, we'll get recommendations from both of you because you both uh, do wonderful things and you enjoy things that I have not even heard of yet, and I want to know more. So you can email us anytime, folks. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. That is the name of our email address, and then you send it and become a fresh member of the catch-up crew like Greg Dowd. He says, hey, guys, I'm a longtime listener to the show and love what you guys do. I find myself agreeing with Mark almost every time. I didn't pick this email, I promise. What can I say? He keeps it real. Anyway, a movie I would love to see you see, hear you guys discuss is Taken. I totally think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong and feel that even the audience score is a bit too low. The fight choreography is amazing along with the pacing, and I feel this movie just connects on all the right levels. Sure, you can tell they didn't have much of a budget to work with, but I think it definitely set the bar that movies like John Wick have launched from. So obviously, I love this movie. Take care and keep up the great work. That's from Greg, who's from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada. Well, thank you, Greg, for that uh, lovely email. And I would love to talk about the movie Taken. I was blown away by when I saw it back in, what, 2008, I think it was. Taken, it it should be certified fresh. Koi, Naz, right? A hundred percent. I mean, uh, just for the memes that this movie has provided, like ever people under a bed, you cannot think you cannot not think of taken when you are like playing hide and seek and you're under a mattress. <laughs> and for that reason, I agree. The pop culture influence on movies is, I think, a little underserved by critics. And I, I've very, very, very publicly said I'm not a critic. I'm a pundit. I don't like critiquing. I like enjoying. I like espousing wisdom about, but not tearing down ever. And I do think that the world could be better served by at least acknowledging the influence of big films on other films as a merit system all its own. And there is very rare a film the size of Taken. Literally, Liam Neeson's career has had a fifth wind and it's changed everything. So yeah, Taken deserves at least like an honorary, holy crap, we changed cinema Oscar. Yeah, 10 years later, you'd think Liam Neeson would just stop answering his phone in movies because it's never good news on the other end of that line. I hope he comes back from the I hope he comes back from the dead in a Star Wars Disney Plus spinoff. I'd be so happy. I'm a prequelist and that would just like make my dreams come true. I think you might see him with the beard. Maybe you see it sooner rather than later. And then I'll still be complaining that we didn't get to see Blade in the Obi-Wan Kenobi show taken, by the way, 59 percent. So it's it's the Spaceballs curse of being one percent away from oh. fresh but this was a super fresh episode of this podcast because we had the great naz perez running the ship with me and koi jandrew pundit to all things especially in the world of comic books and his show comic book shopping koi cast koi start with you uh, where can all the kids out there find you what's the hub of koi jandrew so everybody can uh, learn from the wisdom that you espouse on a daily basis So I am focusing on growing my YouTube independently. I'm trying to make things uh, on my own, which is a different thing for me. I usually work with networks and for networks. And hopefully soon, Sony Studios available. You guys got my number. I've been working with you. I'm I'm available. Listen, from your lips to God's ears, it's going to (laughs) happen. So YouTube and TikTok are my big two. TikTok short form content. I know Naz has given me some of my favorite compliments about like just giving data in rapid succession. So TikTok for the quick stuff, YouTube for the long stuff. And uh, I really just love that people care about any of this. So it's filled my nerd heart with joy that there's ever even a conversation like of, hey, I'm curious about this character. What do you recommend that? That getting to do that just means the world that I've gotten to the point where people care about my opinion and that people care about the character that my opinion relates to. Wait, tell them, tell them your handle because you guys have to follow them. The videos are so funny. They're so informative. 
Uh, I'm at Coy Jandro, C-O-Y-J-A-N-D-R-E-A-U on both TikTok and YouTube. And uh, Naz Perez, you as as Coy mentioned, you uh, you have an affinity for TikTok yourself. But what's where can everybody kind of check out all the wonderful stuff that you're working on from the world of entertainment to fashion to sports? Yeah, well, you can find me in a McDonald's eating a McFlurry every Sunday <laughs> night because I love sitting inside and McFlurries are my favorite. Um, yeah, you can find me at Naz Perez on Instagram, uh, on E! Entertainment, covering uh, award shows on live TV, on all Rotten Tomatoes stuff. Rotten Tomatoes is my it's my um, meat and potatoes, just to bring potatoes back in. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, on our network, we have Rotten Tomatoes. I host Rotten Tomatoes Countdown. The ketchup's coming back, which is super exciting. Um, and yeah. I don't know. Just on Instagram, I guess. I'm also the founder of a support group for people that are heartbroken called Heartbroken Anonymous. So if you are heartbroken over the score of Morbius, come. We are here to support you. Um, We do two meetings a month over Zoom and in person in L.A. uh, And heartbreak is overwhelming distress. So it doesn't have to be romantic. And yeah, that's it. It's a wonderful thing that Naz puts out into the world. So I highly encourage you, if you are feeling down for whatever reason, check out Heartbreak anonymous uh i mean i do before we go i do have to ask naz one more question and naz what is currently the best burger in southern california having not had yellow paper burger and burger she wrote yet because i'm a massive fan of smashed cheeseburgers burger in los she angeles wrote? yeah burger she, <laughs> burger she wrote is a new place i haven't had it yet so those two are on my list and i'm hoping to have both of them this weekend but um my top favorite burgers are love hour los angeles um, in Koreatown, Easy Street, which just moved to Studio City, uh, The Window, which has locations on Venice Boardwalk in Venice and in Silver Lake. But my number one top cheeseburger of all time is Burgers Never Say Die in Silver Lake. It is oh as if it's if McDonald's just put a little it's if McDonald's put 10 more minutes into their burger, that is what you're going to get. It's just classic. There's no crazy onions, no crazy seasonings. It's just your classic all-American cheeseburger. And it makes my dreams come true every time I put it in my mouth. I will start Koi off with uh, with your recommendation for me a couple of years ago. Hi Ho Burger, they're opening a new location. I will see you all there. That was Koi Jandrew, Naz Perez. Remember, you can email us RT is wrong at Rotten Tomatoes anytime. Subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff you love doing for our podcast. Please continue to do so because it really helps us out and it just makes us feel special. And keep sending in those Hook recommendations. By the way, we've got some great recommendations on what how you feel about the movie Hook. Do a video of yourself. Send it into us. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. Very special hook movie naz you have feelings about hook mark yeah well of course i love hook but um i have a question for you when are we doing night at the roxbury because night I at the roxbury know. is now officially on the calendar and <laughs> okay. we're gonna get that thing going in probably the late <laughs> summer early fall sometime when clubbing season is in full swing <laughs> what is love get... baby don't hurt me i am <laughs> can there. we do it in the suits because i will get Actually, oh my I god i would so suit. dress up with you that would be epic we should go to beverly hills and do a photo shoot let's do die. a whole event around it let's this is why you have it. let's and review court. it <laughs> I this is why you do it. I, see, now you all got me excited for uh, for Night of the Roxbury. Next week's episode is going to be a movie that we do have a fervent lover of these films, and that is Andres Cabrera, who loves all things in the wizarding world, including Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I'm not so much, but I'm going to rewatch the movie and see how I feel because the new one's coming out. So Fantastic Beasts, the first one is our next week topic. And until then, for our great producer, Lucy, Brian Perez behind the scenes, the whole family here at Rotten Tomatoes, Koi Jan. Andrew Naz Perez. I am merely Mark Ellis staring at a snoring Molly the Wonder Dog saying thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. <laughs>